Well, hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, kids, great job today. Um, we've made this first Sunday of the month uh, just kind of this joint gathering of having the older kids in the service with us. And we're doing that intentionally. And um, I'll just say this, um, this week, I mean, this month you got, you know, palm branches. Next, next month, May, I think we're doing lightsabers, just so you know, just come back for that. Um, but I got a question for you kids. And, you know, usually this is the part of the service where you're just supposed to be quiet. But I want you to answer this question, okay? And feel free to shout it out, okay? Kids, do you think your parents love you? Yes. All right. Sounds pretty good. Okay, yeah. Now here's the second question. How do you know? Because they say, I love you a lot. That is wonderful. That is great job, Sheena. You get the props, right? <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, you know what? That's true, right? Like parents, right? You, you communicate to your kids. You communicate. You say you love them, and that is wonderful and true. But I think we all know this. In any relationship, real love is shown through actions. Real love is demonstrated. It's not just merely words. There's, there's something more to it. And you know, it was a while back when we started the Gospel of Mark, and we're in this final section, the last two to three chapters, and we've said this, why is Mark focused so much on the suffering and death of Jesus? Why? Literally everything slows down in the Gospel of Mark to this final week. In fact, the section that was just read is probably about three to four hours of Jesus' life. And yet it's almost like if you've seen the Netflix series, you know, it's like you zero in on a scene intentionally. So why? Why not just get to the resurrection or perhaps just say this, why not just make a brief summary you know, Mark, we said in this section of 14, 15, and 16, he actually has 12 scenes leading up to his death. So why? Why give 12 scenes to this? Well, let me submit to you this. Mark wants us to see just how great and how big God's love in Jesus is for you. Or let me put it this way, we're going to see it today, <clears throat> that God's love in Jesus is bigger than all our weaknesses, our sin, and our failures. And so in these five scenes we're going to look at today, I want us to see three things about this kind of love. I want you to see first that it's realistic, second, that it's obedient, and third, that it's steadfast. So let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, just pray this morning that by your Spirit, through your Word, you would reveal to us, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth, the width the depth, the height, and the length 
of the love of God in your son Jesus. And help us by grace to be changed by it. Amen. Well, firstly, it's realistic. You know, we kind of pick off off of last week in which Jesus has just finished the Passover meal. And they've sung some psalms and they've crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the way, Jesus tells them this in verse 26. He says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah. And in so doing, he basically says to his 12, you are all going to flake out. You're all going to abandon me. This is quite a prediction. And it's interesting, right? How are they going to respond? And, you know, no surprise, Peter pipes up. If you know Peter, verse 29, Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. Listen, I love Peter because, right, he's, he's saying, Jesus, you don't know my heart. I don't know everybody else's heart here, but let me tell you what, I'm all in. Even if they leave you, I'm not going to leave you. And Jesus looks at him, and, and he says this in verse 30, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. At this point, Peter and all the rest up the ante, they say, Jesus, even if we have to die with you, we will not leave you. We will not deny you. Well, we all know Jesus and them can't both be right, right? Let me ask this question. Why did Jesus tell them this? You know, one potential answer could be Jesus is pouring on the guilt trip, right? You know, like you always do this, right? Like we are with some relationships, right? But let me suggest to you a better answer, a more accurate answer, because that's not the heart of Jesus. Look with me at what Jesus says in verse 28. And note, this is right after he has told them that they're going to fall away. He says this in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Notice this. Jesus is saying this right after he has predicted their fickleness, that they're going to be unfaithful to him. Jesus says, I will remain faithful to you. I will not leave you. And here's what that means for us. God's love in Jesus is absolutely realistic. Listen to this quote by J.A. Packer. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me and quench his determination to bless me. 
Let me put it this way. God's love towards you is not this like Instagram filtered love, right? That takes out all the blotches, all the stuff that you don't want to see. God's love is, it's an x-ray love. It actually, think about this, Jesus knows their heart more deeply than they know their own heart. He knows exactly how they're going to respond. He knows them all the way down, and yet he says, I'm not going to leave you. How about that love? Do you realize how big that love is? But secondly, we see this passage in obedient love. So at the foot of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And what's interesting is what comes next is, is rather shocking, surprising, because the passage says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In fact, in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And the reason why this is so shocking is, is that so many other individuals in history have faced their death with more poise than Jesus is right now. Socrates, for example, when he was given hemlock, you know, the account says something where he's tossing out one-liners stoically as he drinks it. Um, Even those who later on follow Jesus into death because they identify with Jesus, even they face their death with more courage than at this moment with Jesus. So, for example, in 1555, there are two guys, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burned for their faith in Oxford. And when it was being lit underneath their feet, Latimer said this, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So here's the question. What's going on here? Why is Jesus so troubled? Why is he so sorrowful? Why is he so rattled? Why is he unhinged? And the answer is in Jesus' prayer. In verse 36... Jesus says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Here's the question. What's in the cup? What's in it? In the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for God's wrath against evil. So one example is in Isaiah 51 God's people are in exile, and and God says this, You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Now, we need to pause here for a moment because some of you, bells are going off in your mind saying, Wait, um, Pastor, we're talking about God's love, and now we just threw in the mixed wrath. How can those coexist? Well, let's put it this way. Kids, I need your help again. 
let's say, kids, you're on the playground, and you're playing with some of your friends, and some other older kids come up, and they begin to pick on one of your friends. They begin to call names, begin to kind of move him a little bit, bully him. What's going to be your response? What are you going to do? Are you going to get angry? Yes. Very angry, right? Why? Because you care and you love your friend. Because what's happening is wrong. To be indifferent is actually not to love. Becky Pippert puts it wonderfully. She says this, Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. So how can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Friends, do you understand God's wrath and God's love are actually right? His wrath is predicated on his love. And here's, here's what's happening here. When Jesus says, if at all possible, take this cup from me, Jesus is for the first time beginning to experience and see what he will be facing on the cross. Consider this for a moment, two times in the Gospel of Mark. The Father, when speaking about the Son, has said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. They have been in relationship for all eternity, in perfect fellowship, and now, and now, the Son is realizing, experiencing, what it's going to take. No longer the favor of the Father, but the anger, the right anger. Not for what he's done, but for what we've done. And he's undone. Friends, no one has ever experienced what Jesus is facing. No one. And that is why he is staggering. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon entitled Christ's Agony, put it this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might looking at, looking at and stand in view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. And there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And two, that he should be willing to adore them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But here's the kicker. 
the last part of the prayer, Jesus says this, yet not what I will, but your will be done. If there's any way possible to remove this cup from me, please let it happen. But not my will, but your will be done. Christ's love is obedient. Think for a moment with me. Let's say you're a family, or let's say you're a couple, or you go out with some friends, you're trying to pick the movie you're going to watch, right? And there's, right, like if you're a family, just forget about it. You're not going to please everybody, right? Or if you're a dating couple, it's like, well, what do you want to watch? I don't know, what do you want to watch? And you kind of play the game because you don't want to, like, offend, but you also want to really want to watch this one, so you try to figure it out, right? But we all know in those moments, when there's real love, it's when you put the other before yourself, right? When you say, actually, I'm going to die to myself tonight. Yes, we can watch the chick flick, okay? We can watch this movie because I want you to enjoy tonight more than I'm going to enjoy tonight, right? Or as a family, you know, I, I keep going. But that's a small example. But do you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, because I love the Father, and because he loves us, I'm going to put their will, their well-being before my own. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, describing this, says that Christ was obedient even to the point of death. It's an obedient love. But lastly, the love of God in Christ is steadfast. Um, In the midst of Jesus staring into the cup and three times praying, if you remember, each time after he gets done praying, he goes to Peter, James, and John, and he finds them sleeping, right? And he says, get up, what are you doing? And then again, sleeping, and then sleeping. In Jesus' hour of suffering, when he wanted his closest friends around him, in their weakness, they let him down. And this is an interesting part of this section because, friends, think about it. Jesus is all alone in the garden. His his three closest friends are sleeping. He knows Judas is on his way. But guess what? This is actually the one moment where he could just slip out and no one would know. He could leave Jerusalem, leave it all behind. And what does he do? He wakes them up the third time. He says, my betrayer's a hand. Judas enters. And Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Really? Yeah. Betrays Jesus with a kiss. There's a little bit of a scuffle. 
and then everyone flees. Verse 51 says this, and they all left him and fled. And there's that awkward note about the man running away naked, right? But here's the point. Jesus is abandoned. He's all alone. The men he's invested three years of his life in have now either betrayed him, fallen asleep on him, or abandoned him. There's no last man standing. He's all alone. Finally, our passage concludes with two scenes that are actually two trials. One formal, one informal. Both going on at the same time, in almost the same place. The first is Jesus being tried by the Jewish leaders on whether or not he is the Christ. The second, a servant girl is interrogating Peter about his relationship to Jesus. In the first trial, the Jewish leaders are looking for a testimony to put Jesus to death, and they can't put testimonies together. They won't agree. And then finally, the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus' response in verse 62 is remarkable. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen, if there's ever a moment in a trial where, you know, you kind of like could stay quiet or maybe just like leave some information out, like this would be the moment to do it. Jesus not only confesses he's the Christ, but he says he's the son of man. He's coming again, which is a claim, commentators note, to deity. It's from Daniel 7, which is why they rip their robes. And this is the irony. Tim Keller puts it this way. Here is Jesus, <clears throat> the judge over the entire world, because that's what the Son of Man is. That's what the picture is, being judged by the world. He should be in the judgment seat, and we should be in the dock in chains, and everything is turned upside down. Meanwhile, right outside the servant girl, the high priest sees Peter warming himself and says, hey, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter denies it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And then he hears the rooster crow. And then the servant girl sees him and says to another bystander, this man is one of them. And Peter again denies it. And then the bystander says to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And then Peter in verse 71 says this, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the rooster crows. As one commenter put it so well, Peter, the one who was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, is now the first to deny that he knows the Christ. And yet, Jesus remain steadfast through it all. Let me ask again, why does Mark slow things down? 
and show us scene after scene of Jesus moving toward his death. Because he wants us to see the kind of love that he has toward us. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our weaknesses, because we doubt it. We minimize it. One more time, consider what we see in this passage is that God's love is utterly realistic. You know what that means? You do not have to pretend or minimize your sin or your weaknesses or your failures. Jesus will not cancel you. One of the things that's so unique about this is the Gospel of Mark, the primary source for it, is Peter himself. Listen, if there was ever a moment to put an Instagram filter on a story, it would be this one. In Peter's recounting, could he not just put it a little bit different way about what happened? Maybe give some reasons why it might have been bad for him to deny him, but this, this is why. No, he doesn't, doesn't minimize it. It's right there. Why is it? Because he knows that God knows him all the way down, all the way down, all the way down. And he loves him. Which means, I'll let the entire world see this. Because I want them to know the kind of love that God has toward them. God's love is obedient. And do you know what that means? You know, you all know it. You're all trying to perform. I'm trying to perform for him. But do you understand, if you understand that God's love is obedient, that Jesus obeys the Father, and because of his obedience, because he goes to the cross, it means that's how you're accepted before the Father. It means this, it's not based on your performance. It's based on something that's already happened. And thirdly, it's steadfast. It remains. You might say this morning, my sin is too big. You might say this morning, I've been weak and unfaithful for far too long. I've definitely surpassed God's love. But do you understand what this passage is saying? Even on your worst day, and let's be honest, this account is probably one of the worst days of disciples. He says, I will meet you in Galilee. In other words, my love will remain. Do you know that? Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Listen, just to be clear, if you're not a Christian this morning, this love is not this generalized love. It is in Christ. This is where it's found. It is in Him. The whole point of the text is that you might see that God saves and that it's all in what Jesus has done. And that means you learn to rely on Him. You trust Him. Friends, God's love in Jesus is bigger than all of your weaknesses, than all of your sin, and all of your failures. And he's shown it to you. It's not just words. He has demonstrated it, and he has done it. 
Let me, for a moment, just invite the band to come back up and we'll close. And as they come up, let me read one final quote from Frederick Buechner describing God's love. And then we'll pray. Here's where he writes. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich or the black man for the white man, the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer, this is God's love. It conquers the world. Have you been conquered by this love? Receive it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these stark accounts that demonstrate the love that you have towards sinners. And we pray this morning that you would take our hearts which shrink your love, which minimize your love, and that you would subvert them by this truth, by the width and the depth and the height and the length, with a love that is steadfast and obedient and faithful and remains even when we are not. And would you change us by it? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.